Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Doug Melville, a three times TEDx speaker, former male cheerleader, and professional 27 foot long hot dog car driver. Doug Melville is the Chief Diversity Officer of TBWA North America. Doug's CV is the epitome of diverse, including working alongside basketball legend Magic Johnson and being an assistant tour manager on the Britney Spears Baby One More Time tour. That's not to mention hosting Snoop Dogg on his The Disruptor series podcast. Doug says, give difference the benefit of the doubt. Keeping a limited mindset based solely on what you know is how you get stuck. The best ideas and outcomes come from being willing to extend your thinking, opening your mind and believing in the unknown. Welcome to the show, Doug. Thank you so much. How are you doing today? You feeling good? Yeah, good. Yeah, you? All right. I'm good. I'm here in the uh, heart of New York City, Manhattan. So uh, it's a pleasure to speak to you today. I'm uh, looking outside my window. I live on the 40th floor, so I get a good vibe. We got some good weather here, so we'll be positive where we can. Nice. Well, let's chuck the seven quickfire questions at you, Doug. Sure. So beer or wine? Uh, definitely wine. Favorite is Grenache or Pinot Noir, dark red, not really into beer. Syracuse Orange or Boston College? Well, I'm a graduate from Syracuse Orange, so I got to rep the orange. <laughs> and my favorite fruit. We're the only college that has a fruit as a mascot. Ah, I did not know that. Uh, Rob Schwartz or Robert De Niro? I got to go with Rob Schwartz. Um, you know, this guy is the most creative CEO I've ever worked with. And I appreciate someone who gives answers. Magic Johnson or Patrick Ewan? Gotta go Magic Johnson. Uh, he was one of my mentors, uh, an amazing leader, an amazing um, boss, and just a genuinely super person who was so willing to help so many people all the time. So I gotta go with him over Patrick Ewan. Right, we've got a Britney one now. Baby, one more time, or oops, I did it again. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I got to go baby one more time. I got to go hit one more time. Not sure exactly what the song was about, but I, I will vote for that. Nice. Ralph Lauren or Tommy Hilfiger? Got to go with Tommy Hilfiger. Another amazing mentor, him and his brother uh, of mine. So uh, never met Ralph Lauren, although love his documentary, but I got to ride or die with TH. And the last one then, Doug, hot dog or Snoop Dogg? Oh, hot dog or Snoop Dogg. I got to go Snoop Dogg. Um, I had a chance to interview him and he was an amazing person. His whole team 
Uh, he travels around with a creative officer. So that's something that I thought was a, a really cool thing, really modern and forward thinking. Nice. Okay, cool. Well, hopefully we can um, dig into that a bit more in a few minutes. So, um, so again, Doug, thank you for joining us. To kick things off on this show, we like to celebrate the sometimes linear, often remarkable route that guests take in their career, certainly the early days. So how did your journey begin? Because your bio makes for quite remarkable reading. Um, well, I started uh, my, I had one internship in college uh, and I had the honor to intern under Quincy Jones at his Quest record label. And that was my first time ever having an internship, my first time ever, you know, being exposed to a professional work environment. It was the entertainment industry. I finished up with that, went back to school. While I was at university, I was a male cheerleader. So uh, I wanted to play football. I was going to walk on. They told me I wouldn't get enough playing time. The coach recommended that I joined the cheer team. I had never heard of that. I didn't even know what that was. I had no context or anything. I was so frustrated anybody would ask me such a question. But <laughs> I ended up joining the team and uh, becoming a competitive uh, cheerleader, which was uh, a great experience in this life. But when I graduated college, uh, my first job was actually, uh, I went to all 50 states in the United States of America, well, actually 48 continental United States, uh, a job called Hot Dogger, where I worked for Oscar Mayer driving the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. And the interesting thing about that job was you're trained for 30 days before you go out on the road uh, on how to do an interview, how to set up an event how to book, you know, talent and the whole thing. And then six different Wienermobiles each have three people in them. And then what you do for one year, for 400 days, you drive around the United States of America, you book your own events, you do your own press, and you get paid out a bonus based on how many media impressions you have. So this was my first opportunity to really travel to all 48 states also learn how to do an interview, also learn how to present myself and all those things. So it was a really unbelievable opportunity. And I encourage people on their first year out of school to maybe, you know, take that as an option and an opportunity uh, for them professionally, because rarely are you going to get that chance to travel so much. When I finished with the with that role, uh, I joined the uh, Britney Spears Hit Me One More Time tour uh, as an assistant tour manager. And I got to travel around the country again <laughs> and much better accommodations, much better hotel. Um, and the assistant tour manager, for those that don't know, um, the tour manager typically handled the production, the load in and the loadout. And then the assistant tour manager works with the opening acts, uh, catering, hotel, makeup, wardrobe, um, radio winners, the band running from the tracks you know, background dancers, and you work to keep the continuity together uh, of the tour and of the opening act. So that was an amazing uh, opportunity uh, to join that. And after the tour was over, I had the opportunity to work for Tommy Hilfiger and his brother, Andy Hilfiger, uh, on some music-related projects, uh, working with an artist, Michael Frito, working with other artists that they had uh, in their catalog and other relationships they had across their industry. 
And they started to educate me on something known as the fame industries, which are fashion, advertising, music, and entertainment, and how all those industries, uh, you know, work together and align together uh, and help shape pop culture. So that was really a true mentorship opportunity where I got to understand, you know, how fashion worked, how everything was all interconnected with commerce and marketing and branding and learning from a man who really created an uh, empire based on his name. And he was one of the last uh, clothing legends or designers that named their company after themselves. So after him, most people choose to use another name, their first name and middle name, but he used his birth name. So that was an amazing opportunity um, to learn about fashion. And they, the two brothers then told me and encouraged me to start my own company. So I then started my own company and it was a marketing company. And then their organization hired my company out to be an advisor for marketing projects and special projects uh, that they were working on with different talent and artists. And that's how I kind of formally arrived in marketing and advertising. Wow. Oh, Doug, I've got too many questions. I don't know where to start. So, so let's go back to the beginning of that incredibly and remarkable story. So you went from Quincy Jones. I understand you, you've, you've referenced that they that you kind of learned about reputation and the, the uh, significance and importance here. So I can easily draw parallels between that and the fame industries that, are, that, that, are, that you kind of articulated it as. Um, Travelling 48 states in a, in a 27-foot-long hot dog car, I mean, it's just... I suppose as a Brit, that really stands out. Maybe it's a, a more familiar sight in the US, but how does that work? And, and, and what's it like to actually be in one of those vehicles? Well, you know, when I took the job, my parents and my family uh, didn't necessarily, you know, want me to take the job because it sounded so ridiculous. But from my standpoint, you know, when you just graduate college and you don't know what you're going to do, I really didn't want to sit in an office at a desk for, you know, nine to six and the whole thing. So this was just an opportunity for me to travel and get, you know, drive around and, and do uh, experiential marketing is what it's referred to as now. But at the time, um, the Wienermobile is interesting because in Americana, it's the first ever mobile marketing car ever created. So yeah. created in the early 1900s. Uh, as a way for Oscar Mayer and his brother, who had just started a, a hot dog and sausage making industry uh, in Chicago to drive around to market their new product. And ultimately, when the sales erupted, it got bought out and went into a large corporation, they kind of commercialized the effort. So um, that was just a really interesting opportunity to see the United States and I traveled around with two other people and it was, it was wild. It was, you know, when do you ever travel around the country for 400 days? <laughs> like, no, it was no. Well, I was going to, I was going to pick you up on that actually. I mean, firstly, that's one hell of a brand code, a 27 foot long hot dog Wienermobile. But, but as you said, to, to, to see 48 States, I mean, I don't know the, the stats behind that, but I would imagine you're, you're in very small company of those that have, explored all of the states i learned so much about america i learned so much about so many different things because people just unfortunately particularly in america people don't have the opportunity or the ends or the means to really travel 
as much as they should. So this was really an opportunity to um, see the whole United States, understand culture. You know, now that I'm a diversity officer, I realize that, you know, being able to match cultures or if people say they're from a certain state or area, you know, I've been there most of the times, you know, I mean, I've been to almost all the state capitals. So you just have a better understanding of things. I have a relatively good memory. So, you know, if someone says I'm from Arkansas, you know, I can relate to how that is because I probably spent a week there. Yeah, yeah, exactly that, exactly that. Well, and, and not least, um, I'm a big believer that when people graduate and certainly when they're in a position where they don't necessarily have too many responsibilities that are physically tying them to a particular place, to so just do stuff and try stuff. And, you know, you, you learn from that and you learn what you like, what you don't like. And if you succeed or fail, then it's almost irrelevant at that stage. You've just got to, you've got to go all in. Yeah, and, it, and it's also a learning process because everything builds off everything. It's a, the quote Steve Jobs said about connecting the dots backwards. But the reality is I would never have been hired as an assistant tour manager if I didn't have experience traveling throughout the United States. That was a key part of me getting hired. And the fact that I was so young, only one year out of school and had been to all the states was the, really the primary reason I got hired. So you can't separate one thing from another. The other thing about it was, you know, that was before Napster was just coming out. So people were still buying physical records. So just during that time, you know, there was a lot of, you know, going to the record store, going to the morning shows, doing the concerts from the radio station. So it was very communally based. You know, there was really very limited Internet exposure. There was no mobile devices. You know, there was an occasional cell phone with text only. But you have to understand that the traveling part was the only way you really knew the market. So, you know, building off going to all 48 states was key to me being a tour manager, which then led to, you know, working more in music and in fashion. So everything really is connected. And that's really the most important thing to realize. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense, actually. And that's answered one of the, the other questions I jotted down during your intro, which was, was how does someone become an assistant tour manager for Britney Spears? without as i understand it having it being you know so fresh to you but of course the traveling and going through the 48 states and yeah. and everything you've just said ticks all those boxes and every everyone was really young you know she was 18 the opening acts were 18 19 20 most of the people on the tour were 21 22 23 so you know it was if you remember it it was really most people's first experience at this level so it was a lot of younger people that were just given a chance to, you know, build a family and a connectivity. Yeah. And did it, how did it feel going on, on tour then? How does that feel? Is it, is it almost like a festival? Is it just like a, just one hell of a ride? It was one hell of a ride. Yeah. It was really, you know, I look back at, I have so many pictures. We used to have those disposable cameras. They were like the yellow Kodak disposable yeah, yeah, yeah. in your back pocket. And that was kind of our, um, cell phone camera if you will i would buy them all the time but you know it was to go to every city every night to be on the bus sleeping on the bus with overnights um three or four buses lined up in a row and every city you would go to you know there's people outside everyone's you know full of energy and humming for excitement the hotels they knew where you were staying I mean, truth be told, it was a market for, you know, teens and young women and girls. So, you know, it's not the uh, 
rock star style you would think it was you know a much younger audience but the energy felt good and it was a lot of you know positivity and honestly you learn so much you know i didn't know that you could be a hair or makeup or eyebrow technician or you know it's like all the jobs that you don't know are real careers when you're in your university you know you get the exposure to see all those different jobs and careers and understand you know that there's so there's a whole world out there even all the production jobs and you know someone who's just in charge of pyro and lighting and it was just so much learning yeah, that's a key point, actually, and something I uh, I was talking to someone recently about that when you're a youngster and you're making these decisions, you don't know what the choices are. You don't, like you said, you don't know that there's the jobs out there. Exactly, and you know, I, I at that time because I went to a university and majored in marketing, you know, I, I had kind of built up not a resentment, but um, kind of like a, a whole psychological disagreement with my parents because you know my dad was a judge and. You know, he grew up in a, a, a long line of military pioneers and so forth. So we I was always told to, you know, take the serious road and those aren't really jobs. And, you know, you can't really work in entertainment. You can't really work in media because that's not realistic. You know, try to be a lawyer. So when I got exposed to all these jobs, it was a real eye opening experience um, to just see all the different jobs that were out there. Yeah, and I guess it was almost like an indirect kind of passive education in so many different walks of life from from merch and marketing to commerce to music. And then you say, obviously, supplemented with Tommy Hilfiger. Then all of a sudden, the you know Magic Johnson calls you up. Yeah, so I started a marketing company um, after spending time with Tommy and his brother, Andy. And uh, just so you know, Tommy Hilfiger started, the obviously, Tommy Hilfiger Incorporated, but his brother, Andy... Uh, was really the pioneer behind Tommy Jeans, which was really the hip hop, urban, more casual. If you remember the Aaliyahs and the TLCs and the Destiny Childs, you know, they were really different and complemented one another. But Andy and I uh, ended up having a much stronger relationship over time because he was the one who was really in charge of connecting a lot of these brands with one another um, and musicians and so forth. So after I start my marketing company, um, I found out that one of the things that I was really good at was off-air marketing. So how networks would market celebrity or entertainment-based television shows off-air. So I, my first big major client, um, beside working in fashion, was um, signing MTV. And uh, during that time when Punked and Newlyweds and Pimp My Ride and all those celebrity-based shows were coming out, they brought me on to help craft and execute their off-air strategy. Um, and that was when it really, when I started learning more about how entertainers market shows, how content is developed. And after doing that, uh, I started writing a lot of business plans for different entertainers or different people of note and interest and started soliciting those business plans to them and their teams and their representatives. And I get connected through to Magic Johnson and I interview with him uh, and a group of, of his investors and partners. And uh, they bring me on to head up a marketing partnership that he was leading. Uh, and I became the president of the partnership. And then he ultimately absorbed the partnership into Magic Johnson Enterprises 
uh, and I, I got the you know, honor to join his executive team as the head of his um, business development and marketing. And that was when I moved to L.A. and really got a whole different level and point of view on how business is conducted. You know, he was my master's degree or my PhD <laughs> in, you know, understanding partnerships, relationships, uh, corporate needs. What I what what I learned really from him was, a, you know, he was the owner of Starbucks. So he actually owned 107 Starbucks locations. And these Starbucks were through a partnership uh, with the Starbucks Corporation. And the partnership was based around how he would go into urban communities and he would lay the groundwork through public relations, through the investment into the real estate, through all of the different things that, that happen before a business opens on this scale. And then he would have the rights to these locations. And then those locations ended up becoming more profitable because they were targeted and focused on the community. And he was really the one who encouraged me to start a career in diversity. You know, I was a young executive and he would always say to me, hey, Doug, you know, you're so young, you're a rising star. You should think about making a career out of diversity. And at the time, I really wasn't sure what that meant. He was essentially a diverse partner for a lot of different corporations and uh, entities, but I wasn't really sure. There really wasn't any chief diversity officers. This is like 2007, 2008. And then the financial crash happened in 2008. And my term of three years was up. So I left. And one of the things that I wanted to do was start my own company because I had seen so many different businesses form and so many different relationships. And I had just understood so much, but I was always at the beck and call of someone else. So this was an opportunity for me to start my own company. So I call my best friend, uh, Bill, and I say, Bill, we got to start a company. And uh, he goes, well, what kind of company we're going to start? And I said, we're going to start a company called redcarpets.com. And the reason that I wanted to start that company was just an insight that uh, the way Google's search algorithm works is that if you go on and you look at the most searched words that are not trademarked, and if you started a website backwards, you would naturally get all the keyword search. So I went on to the Google Labs and I saw that the most searched term in the entertainment vertical was red carpets. So what I did was I bought redcarpets.com for $4,400. And then what I started to do was learn about the red carpet. It was first rolled out in 458 BC. It's been around over 500 years longer than the calendar that we use. It's always iconic red. And I started to understand that it was a source of power and it used to be a sign of all these different things. And then it was first rolled out uh, by President Monroe in the United States and then it was trademarked by the New York Railroad Company as red carpet treatment. And then ultimately was laid out outside of uh, Sid Grauman's Egyptian theater for a premiere of a movie. And it was a, a gateway to entertainment. So I said, you know, there's no direct to consumer red carpet companies. I needed to up my digital skills because the Internet was really starting to scale up in 2009. 
So uh, we started redcarpets.com as a direct-to-consumer brand of red carpet and backdrop. So you could go online, design the logo wall, pick a piece of carpet, and it would roll and deliver it to you in a yoga-style bag, and then it would mail to your house or party. And we started this idea, and I got to tell you, we went you know, a couple years where we really didn't sell any of these things. Okay, okay. <laughs> and then Facebook took off <laughs> and we started selling them by the ton. And um, we ended up selling millions of dollars worth of these. And uh, they write an article about it in Wall Street Journal. And I get contacted from the CFO of North America at TBWA through a Facebook messenger. And he extends uh, this idea to me that uh, he was looking for a chief diversity officer and he looked at my background and we had known one another through a previous relationship. And he had asked if that would be something that I would be interested in. And we kind of went through the vetting process. I never heard of the term chief diversity officer as a full-time job. They had never hired one before. It was a little bit of a leap of faith, you know, on both sides of this. And uh, we took a commitment in 2012 and I've been working there uh, as the chief diversity officer since then. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. So to go back then, so in 2007, you said you had your, or, or came to the end of your magic master's degree of sorts. And when magic said to you about working in diversity, you just said you weren't sure exactly what that meant. So what does that mean? We're in 2020 now, you are a chief diversity officer. Can you define what that means? Yeah. So um, on my first day at TBWA, um, when we didn't know how we were going to create our diversity department, what we did was we looked at diversity as if it was a client. So if diversity walked into the agency and said, help us, what would we actually do? So on my first day in alignment with the CMO of TBWA at the time, we had 33 people in a room and we co-led a session together. Meanwhile, I've never met any of these people before in my life. This is my first day walking in. And there was strategy, creative, there was legal, there was HR, there was finance, there was production, there was an account team now called business team. And we had different stations around the room and we had different exercises and so on and so forth. And we stayed in the room for eight hours with a lunch break. And then at the end of the day, we all went out, we had dinner, and they told me to come back in two weeks. And on May 15th was my second day. And on May 15th, when I came back, they uh, had synthesized the information and said, we wrote an outline of a blueprint on how we feel diversity could best be utilized in a decentralized creative environment. So the most important thing here is that most diversity efforts, studies, programs, designs were all done in centralized, non-creative environments for companies that are very monolithic and vertical and aren't based on creativity. So in order to have an effective diversity department in a decentralized creative company, we needed to actually write and create the playbook. So I became the leader of the diversity as a client team. And let me tell you some things that came out of this report. Number one was in order for diversity to best be in, implemented in an organization, decentralized creative organization, 
it was best to align it with finance. So my role is in the finance department. I report to the global CFO. I've never met another diversity person that is that <laughs> way, but the thinking was you can't change what you don't know. And if you sit with finance, you can understand headcount, cost for everything, so on and so forth. You know, the next thing was progress over PR. So one of the mistakes a lot of people make is that they're dying to make a press release before there's any progress. So if you're late to the party, do you need to make an announcement? That was the second thing. The third thing was how do we define diversity at the organization? So do you define it as women equality? Do you find it as LGBT? Do you find it as people with disabilities? And what we realized was there was two keys to how to define diversity to catch on in an organization. Number one is we define diversity as a domestic emerging market. So this is, don't look at it as something over there in the corner. Look at it as something that is a growth opportunity for your company, your entity, your clients, your business. So in the United States of America, if you took all the people of color out, and put them in another country, they'd be the fourth wealthiest country in the world behind China, Japan, U.S. whites. If you took right. everyone in America under 34, 51% are people of color. So while some people may define America as a mature market, I define diversity in America as a domestic emerging market. The second part was diversity is everyone. So when you look at how you're going to make a diversity program, it's important that you look at the intersectionality to show that diversity is actually everyone and you need to add voices, not constantly amplify voices. So that was kind of the groundwork of how the diversity program should be set up spiritually and aspirationally. The second part was how is it actually going to be set up in a day-to-day -day reality at the organization? So one third of my job is workforce. So my, my job was broken up into three parts. One third of my job is workforce. So that's who we bring into the company. You can't hire who you don't interview. That could go down a whole cascade line from succession planning to our interview process, to how we scout, to how we manage referrals and how we give incentives and so forth. The second third of my job is belonging which is how do we keep people here that are already here? And this goes to vertical um, career pathing, benefits, training, learning and development, all those other things that have been historically known as soft skills. And the third part of my role is supplier diversity. So this is, you know, when you work at a corporation or an entity, are we ensuring that at least 10% of every dollar that we spend at our company is going to businesses that are owned, operated, and controlled by women or people of color? And are we making sure that we have directors, set designers, casting, editorial, visual effects, distribution, translation, all the things that we hire, are we ensuring that they're included in the bid process? So that's how the job originally was laid out. Now, to your question in 2020, one of the biggest things that I didn't mention was clients. So now a lot of the work is how can we assist clients? How can we support clients? What's going on with the casting? What is the visualization in front of the camera? How can we ensure that our DNI strategy is aligning with theirs? How do we know their goals and values? So 
there's a lot of different complexities post COVID that's added a different layer to the position. And your point there about clients, is that, are there, are there parallels there in a way to the importance of supplier diversity? Because I think it's natural or certainly uh, common for people to just look internally when they think about diversity and not actually even consider ex- external supplier diversity, as you've just explained. Yeah, I don't think people really consider supplier diversity. Um, for me personally, it's one of the things that I'm most passionate about because typically people who work at a company do really well at that. And then they decide to start their own company because they've become experts at their craft. So the question is, you know, how do we hire out those experts at their craft? You know, how do we support them through financial support and investment through buying their product or service? So a few years I went back to the office and I said to Rob Schwartz and some other executives, you know, we should unify all the diverse and women-owned companies into one place. And they thought the idea was good. And we came up with the name One Sandbox because in diversity, each kind of splinter of diversity works more with their own group than others. So what I'm saying is if you talk to the women group or the black group, Latino group, disability group, veterans group, Asian group, and so forth. Typically they just work at their constituents to make sure they're elevated. But from a buyer standpoint at an agency, it would be better if all of the vendors across all these different areas were actually playing in one place. So what we did is I went and I audited, you know, hundreds of companies throughout the United States and tried to identify the ones that passed, you know, seven point checklist that we created. And then we put them all into one sandbox and we ended up loading 417 companies in there. And uh, in the past few years, we have spent $250 million with these businesses. So a quarter of a billion US dollars was spent across these 417 companies. And I think that is something that you can measure. That's something that you can see. That's something where you could call the CEO. It's tangible, real investment and change. And it's also a way to give a different aperture to your creative executions and projects, in addition to satisfying more clients' requests for diversity in the supply chain. So to your question of does it all get back to the clients, it's all interconnected, but it absolutely does. Yeah, well, that's uh, to be honest, that's what I was alluding to when I when I mentioned the supplier diversity, because essentially we are all just one link away from each other in terms of a business. So, what, so of course you need to think about suppliers, you need to think about your clients. But I love that all playing in one place, one sandbox. I, I didn't, I hadn't appreciated the, the the thinking behind that. Well, thank you. I appreciate you thinking. <laughs> it's fantastic it's amazing um what other what other tips can you can you can you share in terms of um like nailing your your diversity strategy and practices because I, I love the idea of the jury test can you can you share more on that yeah so one of the things is uh when we when we originally defined diversity as everyone um some people thought that was hokey you know like the diversity officer came in here and after all this research and insight, you define diversity <laughs> as everyone. This is the greatest not non-definition I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah. Convenient. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the point of the point of the matter was if you went down, uh, we created something called the jury test. 
and uh, internationally, if offices use it, it's almost a different name or a different representation test. But in America, the jury test uh, represents if you were going to go down to jury duty in your local town, would your department look the same as the people in the waiting room with you for jury duty? So one of the things that we would do in the very beginning stages would say, when you go down to jury duty, who is there? And then executives would yell out, well, you got this kind of person, this type of person, and then we would write them all down. And then we would say, well, when you look at your department, does it look like the jury? Hmm. And it was a way for people to kind of go around understanding and identifying their point of view, but not doing it in a way that was, you know, confrontational. And I think part of it around diversity is you have to be a message and a messenger. You have to be inspirational and, you know, out in front of things, but you also have to be in the weeds. You know, you have to be part art and part science. And the thing that's challenging about it is typically most people don't have both sides of the coin when they evaluate things. But I think if you are an entrepreneur and you can flip your switch to be an intrapreneur, you have a great opportunity of being a lot more successful as a diversity officer because what you have to do is you have to use the systems. Uh, the definition of an entrepreneur um, most widely circulated was from a Harvard professor. And the definition I'm, I'm paraphrasing is something about the ability to create something without objects and uh, items currently in your control. So if you're an entrepreneur, you want to create something that doesn't exist using things that you do not have access to. But when you're an intrapreneur, what you're doing is you're taking that thinking, but instead of using objects and services outside of your control, you're looking internally and you're saying, how can I think about creating something using the objects and services within my control? So then you take that thinking of an entrepreneur and you tweak it with the resources within an organization and you can come up and create new ideas and ways of thinking. And I think that thinking really helps push these DNI departments along in a creative environment where people have to stay motivated. Yeah. And I, and I also think, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I also think it's significant that given your, your conclusion that diversity is everyone you said on day one, in the role you involved everyone you involved strategy creative you involved every department and then equally you were liaising and reporting to the cfo i mean there's a hell of a signal there i know that marketing can often be kind of treated or perceived to be the coloring in department and and, and many would claim it's lost its seat in the boardroom but then immediately there that gave it the significance and, and the power and the inclusiveness to to take this idea and and, and actually run with it that's exactly right. And I think when you when you lay out your plan, including everyone is so important. You know, that that's the whole thing. If you don't get buy in from everybody, it's really hard to get uh, anything moved ahead because the ideas that you bring up, like in a diversity department, I believe personally that you should have less people in the diversity department because the onus is on each individual to evolve. So if you have a big diversity department, people sometimes think, well, if you have a big department, it's your responsibility. But the reality of the situation is if you have a smaller department, 
the onus is on the receiving end for people. So I look at diversity. If you if you look at it just from the same track that a chief digital officer had, you had one CDO, same acronym. He joined the company, you know, 10, 12 years ago. This guy was in charge or this woman was in charge of everything from your CD-ROM jamming to your password being broken to jumping in on a client pitch to figuring out why this doesn't charge, right? It was one digital person. Now it's matured and you would never hire someone with a digital background. You'd hire someone with UX, UI, you know, it would be so specific to their specialty. Diversity is now following the same track. You have one diversity officer, but the reality is you're going to have to get people to increase their diversity IQ and then take on the responsibility, just like we did for digital and upgrade their hardware and their thinking to understand how many countries are in the world that are recognized by the UN, 195, how many countries are in Africa, 54, how many countries are in Oceania, 14, 23 in North America. People actually don't even understand the globe. And that's the first thing that's needed to understand culture. Then you can understand where people come from. Then you can understand language. You know, what's the difference between Hispanic and Latino? They're used interchangeably, but I don't understand. Well, Spain overtook Mexico. And then when Spain overtook Mexico, they made them change their language to Spanish. So people in Mexico speak Spanish, but Mexico and Spain doesn't necessarily culturally have, you know, much in common. One is in Europe. One is in, in Latin America or South America. It's still North America, but just for the sake of the language. So you look at all these different things and then say, well, why would people, we use the term Hispanic all the time. Well, Hispanic is an American term that was actually created by a professor in 1968 for use in the 1970 census. In the 1960 census, they put South America on the census, and many people from the southern states, the old Confederate states, checked South America, even though they didn't live in South America. They lived in South America. And the government got so confused by the results that they commissioned three professors to come up with a word that they could call people that spoke Spanish, and that was the word Hispanic. And I bring that up because a lot of people don't like that word, but you cannot have a conversation about diversity until you understand the language and you understand the basis of these words and you understand the relationship of them. So when you talk about DNI, you have to understand all these different things go into this. And then once people have the hardware and the language is the software, they can continue to learn as this whole conversation evolves. Yeah, I, I had no idea that, that that term was created just to be a label on a box. Exactly. It was just, you know, another interesting thing is uh, the term disability and the term handicap. So you people, again, use these terms interchangeably, but people with a handicap, this was a derogatory term that was started for people that used to be really poor and unable to walk. And they would sit outside Yankee Stadium in the 1900s, in the early 1900s, in the late 1800s, and they would have baseball caps in their hand collecting donations. And then people would come out of the stadium or the events and say, those are the handicaps because they had caps in their hand. But people that are in a wheelchair or have a disability don't like that term. 
but yet that's the term that's used in many different parts of the world and throughout society and marketing. And then the ADA, which is the American with Disability Act, um, they came by and they changed it to disability. But with this change, there was a new logo change and it's a, a person in a wheelchair where the wheels are moving which shows mobility, but the old logo shows that someone has to push you because it has handles on it. So what I'm saying is if you really get into this diversity conversation, guys, you really realize that there's so many details to it that it's not realistic for someone to understand the communication around this subject in their day-to-day -day responsibility without having somebody committed to understanding yeah of course and it also goes to highlight how easy you can offend through ignorance yeah yeah and and the one thing is you don't criticize you teach but you also have to realize it's optics over intent there's a lot of things that people are doing that may not have bad intentions but optically they don't feel good yeah yeah, I loved your point um, a few minutes ago about the, the size of the diversity department, because you're exactly right. You, it, it's more of a kind of conductor, isn't it, of the business, that you're conducting the business. And as soon as that department creates it or has this size, physical size of its own, the more people see it as a separate entity with its own separate objectives. Exactly. Um, people sometimes look at diversity departments as like an arms race. You know, it's like, how many people can we put in the department? And when you look at the tech companies, they have huge departments, 35, 50, 75 people, and they have huge scale. It's just, I think in advertising and media and in many brands, the smaller the department, I think is a bit more efficient. Yeah, I can see the logic there completely. Um, I've got a couple of listener questions for you, Doug. Oh, okay. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But that's not stopped us asking. So we have two to put to you, starting with uh, Jemima. Jemima asks, how do you think the COVID crisis will impact diversity in the workplace as such and the momentum that was building prior to the pandemic? Um, I think there's a few things that have come out of, uh, I think number one is that the pandemic brought up things like empathy, fair wages, health and wellness, universal health care, you know, um, universal pay. I, I forgot the name from it when governments pay people just to survive and live. Um, I think that was a important part of the pandemic as it relates to subjects that were coming up. Then when the social justice kind of pandemic hit, which I call kind of the second pandemic, really, because it hit a whole different note. But what's come out of that is awareness, understanding, relearning our own history, pointing up a mirror to ourselves as a global environment and world workforce. But I think it's done some other very practical things too. Number one is it has flattened the hierarchy of corporations. Everybody has a square, one by two inches. We get on the call, everyone's equal. You don't have to walk down the hall and all that yeah. stuff. Number two is people got to spend more time with their family, which can be looked at as good and bad. Some people have learned from their family. We're hearing stories about employees who didn't know their kids were in an interracial relationship, didn't know their sons or daughter had come out of college. 
So there's a lot of dinner time conversations and learning that's happening from both ways. So I think this is a very interpersonal family learning opportunity. Another thing that's come out of it is people are more comfortable bringing their whole selves to work because they're working from home. So this goes to outfits, dressing of rooms, backgrounds, designs, styles. The challenge there is, is working from home has turned into the other acronym, which is called living at work. Yeah. Uh, so that hasn't been so great for some, but it is a privilege to be able to work from home. Um, so that that's come out of it. Another part of it is I like that after this double pandemic or social justice evolution, we're allowed to say the word black in the workforce. I feel that previously we weren't able to say that word. It was always people of color. And I think that black people specifically have different journeys. Um, I'm black and I feel that my journey is different than other people of color. So I just think that nuance is important. Also, corporations have been much more transparent about their practices and policies that they weren't necessarily uh, previously to this. So I think uh, that's another big thing that that's come out and changed. Uh, the next thing is um, companies are now talking about how much their investments are going to be really laying this out, uh, getting the kind of casual fan or the uh, person who's not necessarily interested in this subject matter engaged. And I think that's been um, super important as well. So those are kind of some of the things uh, that I've seen and also a bigger respect for the chief diversity officer as a role and entity within the organization. Yeah, that's, that's key. I love, I love the idea that everyone has a square in terms of that kind of hierarchy. <laughs> Nice. Um, the second question then, Doug, is from Matt. Matt asks, you worked for Magic Johnson and I read that you felt you got a master's degree from him. He comes across as a lovely guy on the Michael Jordan Last Dance documentary. What was it like working for him and what was it about that role that changed things for you? So you've, we've obviously covered this uh, already, but if there's anything else there that you can add for Matt, that would be uh, that'd be great. Yeah. Well, you know, it was a, it was a dream come true, but it wasn't. Um, I think the best part of the relationship was that he found me because of my interest in business and looking at things through that lens. Also, you know, having the opportunity to work with someone who can, you know, he taught me how to speak and be a better speaker. He taught me to be a better presenter. He taught me to be a better business person. He taught me to be a better you know, just executive and leader, he focused on a lot of the small things um, that made him successful in basketball and business. But I think the biggest thing that he taught me was, you know, the value of ownership, the value of being long-term about investments and relationships and business. And one of the things that was always surprising to me, but he would bring up is how many people that he signed autographs for that would bring the picture back 20 years later and say, I'm a CEO and I have this picture in my office or I'm an executive <laughs> and I have this picture in my office. And surprisingly, a lot of those people would hire him back or want to partner with him because they're their first memory of their childhood. 
And I think that was such an interesting reality because we don't realize that life is long, but everything is so interconnected that you're going to run into the same people, the kids today or the executives tomorrow. And also one thing is your track record. You know, one of the things that him and Quincy Jones both told me was, you know, your reputation is the only thing that precedes you when you walk into a room. So what I tell people is go on Google in a private browser and Google yourself and see what comes back and realize this is what everybody sees before you walk into the room. Amazing. Yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm almost too scared to. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, the final part of the interview is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests, starting with what advice would you give to your younger self? Advice to my younger self would be buy and hold. You know, I, I invested stocks when I was young and I would take the profit and spend it and then put more money in and take the profit and spend it. But if you would have just held a couple more years, I think you'd get a better return. So it would be buy and hold would be, would be the first thing. <laughs> buy and hold. Nice. We've never had that. That's a cracker. Uh, number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? I think there's just too much sizzle and not enough steak. Um, people are <laughs> marketing everything without any back end. And I think it doesn't do a, a service for the industry. Um, it's in, in diversity, it's called woke washing, which is people that are just stepping up to the plate to create amazing things just for the sake of creating it. But there's no back end or anything behind it or any longevity. It's just a thing. It's a grand opening business. Hey, guys, we're doing this thing. And then the second that yeah. turn off from the stadium, it's already packed up in the truck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be the one thing I could change: less woke washing and, um, you know, less sizzle and a little bit more steak. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd always vote for more steak. Number three, uh, Doug. Any books that you can recommend to our listeners? I don't have any book per se that I uh, love, love. I, um, but I do like uh, Napoleon Hill's that old classic that Napoleon Hill wrote. That for some reason. Uh, it's uh, Think and Grow Rich. I think if you read that book, and uh, I don't know if you know the story of Napoleon Hill, but this is a no, no, no. in the early uh, 1900s. But Napoleon Hill wanted to become rich and successful. So he, st he stood out every day in front of John D. Rockefeller's office in New York City and tried to get him on his way to his car and on his way from his car. Can you hire me? Can I work here? And finally, one day, Rockefeller goes, listen, I can't hire you because you actually don't know how to be successful. You have to think like a rich person and grow into that. And he goes, my gift to you is I'm going to give you the 50 most influential people in America, and I'm going to connect you with them. And then what you need to do is interview all 50 of them and find out the similarities in their story and you can have the rights to make a book and if you do that then that'll be my contribution to you and he did it they talked to alexander graham bell all these unbelievable henry ford all these guys and he interviewed all 50 of them and logged all the things they have in common in a book and it's called think and grow rich 
And the thing about it is, if you read this book today, it's the same thing. They have a list of excuses people make when they're not successful. They have mm. different things and attributes that you should have to, to be better at what you do. So I would recommend Think and Grow Rich is my number one. Yeah, that's a cool story. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, and, and the last one then, Doug, is uh, we always like to dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view, to our guest who has to give the reason why. So would you would you do the honours? Yeah, I would like to dedicate this to, uh, and really my whole experience is really to my parents. And, um, you know, my mom and dad still together, married over 50 years, you know, committed to my dreams and just supporting me when it was just questionable what I was doing, driving a Wienermobile and they've been just like amazing allies. And uh, it's also a good North star for me. Anyone who's married 50 plus years, you know, God bless them. So I'm going to dedicate this and, and really everything, all my experiences are because of them. So just a little throwback to the people that made us. Perfect. Well, this episode is very proudly dedicated to your mum and dad. As a final call to action, then everyone listening can head over to calltoaction.co. We'll share links to everything that we've discussed or as many as we can, including a couple of Britney hits for the sake of it. How else can people get more Doug Melville? Um, I, just connect with me on LinkedIn is the best way. Um, I have a TED talk, uh, which is how to improve your diversity IQ. Uh, it's, it's been viewed, you know, hundreds of thousands of times. So, uh, that's a good way to understand that. Also LinkedIn is the best way to get at me. Um, because that's my social media of choice. I don't really use Instagram. I have a little following and Twitter, but LinkedIn is my jam. So that's kind of where I hang out. Perfect. Amazing. Well, we'll chuck the link to that in there too. And also your Ted talks as well. So, Oh, Doug, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real honor and a pleasure to talk. Yeah, thanks so much. This is one of the first ones I've done, so I appreciate it. And finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it and review the pod. Hugely value your support. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Try and I try and I try and I try.